Deuteronomy is very repetitive because it is a collection of speeches that Moses gave to the Israelites before they crossed the Jordan River. So the first section was the first speech, and that was to remind them of their history. And next, he's going to remind them of God's law that was given specifically to them, these basic commandments that we're going to talk about today. And then later, he will go on to cover more specifics related to those basic commandments. So to keep this in focus, at least for me, was to go back and remember the first verse of the first chapter. It said, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. So all that follows in the book of Deuteronomy are the words that Moses spoke to the people to prepare them, to remind them of who they are and whose they are, and to tell them what mindset they needed to have in order to be successful in this new land that the Lord God was giving them. And remember that the the scholars believe that these three speeches and all the events in Deuteronomy occurred over approximately one month. So it wasn't years, but over one month he was doing all this to prepare them to cross over the Jordan. So today, as you open your Bibles, we're going to begin in chapter 4, verse 44, with Moses beginning his second speech. And in this first section, he's just reminding them of God's faithfulness in defeating the two kings east of the Jordan and that they'd already taken possession of that land. And now he's turning his focus to the law that the Lord God had given them. So in chapter 5, in verse 1, we read, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. That term, hear, O Israel, you're going to see that several times. And it's, I like to liken it to, we should have a trumpet blast or something to say, hey, listen to me, pay attention. Something important is going to follow and you need to listen. And even before he got into the commandments in this first verse, he's instructing them. He told them to hear, to listen, take heed, obey. He told them to learn, not just listen and forget, but learn. Remember, take to heart. Make what I'm saying a part of your being. He said, be careful. Take very seriously. Then he said, do. Take action. Don't just sit on the sidelines. Do what I'm commanding you. And then Moses reminds them of the covenant the Lord God made with the Israelite people. In verse 2, he said, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. So it was important to remind them this wasn't just a past event, this covenant. The people standing there at that time were the children of those who had originally left Egypt. But but, but that first generation had died because of their unbelief in God's promises. So the covenant of God is is to give the land with the present generation that he's speaking to. 
J.A. Thompson says in his commentary, the fact is emphasized that the Horeb event was not simply an event of the past which concerned Israel's ancestors only, but was the concern of Israel in every age. It was the responsibility of every Israelite in every age to identify himself with his ancestors and to participate in memory and in faith in their experience of God's deliverance. And so Moses reminds the people of the Ten Commandments by first stating the source, I am the Lord your God. I am who has always been, who is, and who always will be, who chose these people to have a relationship with and bestowed his love upon them and desired their obedience. I am gave these commandments. And note, they weren't just arbitrary rules, but they were for the good of the people as they focused on their relationship with God and their relationship with their fellow man. So rather than viewing the Ten Commandments as negatives, thou shalt not, we should look at the source and the intent of God in giving these commandments. And Moses reviews these basic laws given by God. So in looking at these Ten Commandments as a whole, we see that the Lord God was preparing his people for proper living in community with him and with each other. It was to be a relationship agreement, the covenant with God first, and then because of that relationship with God, how to get along with people in this community. So as we look at these commandments, the first commandment in verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me, or some translations say besides me. So God had introduced himself as I am the Lord God who rescued you from Egypt. I am your redeemer who loves you and established a covenant with you. I am sovereign and in control. Therefore, you have the responsibility of absolute faithfulness to me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And the same is true with us. To recognize God alone to have a relationship with the Lord that dominates every aspect of our life, our actions, our thoughts, our words. We have to come to grips with who or what we are allowing to be the Lord of our life. And if it is the Lord God, then acknowledge him and recognize his authority. And if it's not the Lord, then we need to look in our lives and see who we're allowing to be the center of our life. The second commandment says, do not make images to bow down to and serve. We know God is spirit, and any representation of him would be woefully inadequate. The God who created the heavens and the earth and all things therein cannot be contained in an image. They were not to bow down or serve an image because bowing down implies an attitude of submission. John 4, 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, not by making an idol or an image, but worship the Lord God alone for who he is. They and we also are to submit only to the Lord God for who he is 
and not our image of who we think he is. Remember, the Israelites had been exposed to many pagan gods in Egypt, and they were about to be confronted with more pagan gods as they entered the promised land. So they needed to have firmly established in their minds that the Lord God is Yahweh. There is no other God. And while we need to understand the Ten Commandments were given to these people for their, in their time and for their good, it's, they still hold true today that we need to firmly believe that the Lord God is God alone. There is no other. And the second commandment is not only a negative to not bow down, but it also contains a promise. It said, um, for, the, for the, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Love. God showed love in redeeming them and promises to continue to show his love to all those who love him. We move on to the third commandment. In verse 11, it says, to not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Now, I remember growing up, and learning these commandments, and I could recite it, but I don't think I really understood what that meant um, or why it was so even a, what, so important. You know, I've, I learned to not use the Lord's name in a flippant manner, which is very important. But in researching more and learning, I learned that in ancient history, and even today, a name has meaning. A name causes a response. And with God's name, it's even more so. God's name has power because of who he is. So to invoke his name was to bring the power of his name into bearing. The fact that he even revealed his name to the Israelites was an act of wanting to become a part of their lives. So to invoke God's name as an oath implied that God would agree or seal that oath, which may or may not be true, depending on the oath. So it's important to understand that God's name is who he is. It reflects his character, his nature. So we too should not be casual with the Lord's name, never to be used as an exclamation, but in reverence, acknowledging who he is. And in the same vein as not using an oath, Perhaps a, a more modern way that we might use to misuse the Lord's name may be in prayer or asking the Lord to bless something that is clearly not in his will or something that would be more advantageous to us. So we must be careful what we try to attach or imply by claiming the Lord's name. The fourth commandment, starting in verse 12, reads a little bit differently here in Deuteronomy than if you go back to Exodus and read it there. But still, they are told to observe the Sabbath day, Sabbath, or the Hebrew word is Shabbat, which means rest. And the verses following say to observe Sabbath so that they may remember they were as slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
He redeemed them for the purpose of bringing them to the promised land, the new Eden. If you recall back in our first um, lesson, Drew taught us that Exodus was intended for God's people to have the promised land as sort of a recreation of Eden, the land flowing with milk and honey, if only they would obey. So Shabbat, rest and reflection on the goodness of the Lord God. This action of, excuse me, I lost my place. Um, Rest and reflection on the goodness of the Lord God, his power, his faithfulness, his goodness, and his love. And just as obeying the one and only Lord God, this action of resting on the seventh day also became a distinguishing mark of the Israelites versus the other nations that surrounded them. The Israelites, while in Egypt, never had a day off from their labor. But now that's what God is providing for them. What provision to set aside a day for reflection and worship, but to also physically rest from labor. What other nation had a God so near as to give them rules on how to live in community with each other? The fifth fifth commandment in verse 16 now turns to relationship with man and begins with the family unit. In chapter 4, verse 40, Moses had already admonished them to keep the statutes and commandments that it may go well with you and your children after you. So this would imply that the parents must teach their children these statutes and commandments in order to obey them. So with this fifth commandment, it's sort of the other side of the coin. The parents who taught their children and the children who listened and were receptive and obeyed the law provided a solid family structure. A familial relationship of parent and child represents the relationship of God the Father and his children. Continuing this model of behavior and obedience to the Lord God brought with it a promise for long days and going well in the land. So application for us would be to diligently teach our children about God and establish that firm, solid foundation of family. Teaching our children about living under the authority of God gives them the foundation to respect God and their older family members who recognize God's authority in all of life. And now we come to the last five commandments listed in verses 17 through 21. And these cover fundamental requirements for life and community. They talk about respect for life, respect for the sanctity of marriage, respect for the property of others, respect for another's reputation, and the rejection of covetousness. Well, these were given specifically to provide stability within the community. They obviously still apply to us today. Note that in these last five commandments, six through nine have to do with actions committed. Murder, adultery, stealing, lying, actions that could be known and verified. 
The 10th commandment says, do not covet, which could also mean strongly desire or having a desire that may lead to action. Now, a desire is not readily verifiable, is it? Not like an action. So Peter Craigie says, the 10th commandment is an effective summary of commandments six through nine and that the normal motivation involved that would lead to the action would be self-interest. Self-interest causes murder, adultery, theft, and lying. So if the 10th commandment is indeed a summary, it could be stated, don't desire what you cannot have, which may cause you to act in a way that violates commandments six through nine. So in thinking about this, I thought of the biblical example of David. David, who was called a man after God's own heart. But let's think about his actions. He saw Bathsheba on the rooftop and strongly desired or coveted her. He took her. You could say he stole her from her husband. He committed adultery. He had her husband murdered by putting him in front, the front lines of the battle. And then he didn't fess up to it until he was confronted. And all of these actions came because he started with coveting. It's kind of sobering, isn't it, to think that desire can lead to so much sin. And this is what Jesus addressed in Matthew 5, starting with verse 21, regarding these commandments, that it's not only the act that condemned, but also the desire. Jesus said, You have heard it said, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's a matter of the heart. The desires betray us. Desires that can lead us to wrong actions or at least wrong thinking. So with that in mind, it does become clear how the 10th commandment is a summary of 6 through 9. There was a noted scholar who was asked if there should be any other commandments. And his reply was that these 10 seem to cover all situations. So then following, Moses reminds the people that he's giving the words of the Lord, not his own words, but we read in verse 22, these words that the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added, no more. And then as we go down, we read the response from the people in verse 27, where they said, they will hear and do all the Lord had to say. Don't we often say that? We'll, we'll hear and do. They intended to obey. They really did. But as the event faded away and daily life took over, the intent started to lessen in their hearts. And much like us, right? We intend to obey and we can rationalize all we want, and then we get bogged down with stuff. 
and we kind of slip right into sin without meaning to. But then as we go on in verses 28 and 29, we see the heart of God the Father, where it says, the Lord heard your words, which tells us he's always present, always attentive to his people, always near, caring, overseeing. He is our Father. And in 29, it reveals his desire. Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments. He wants obedience and love in order to bless his own people. And we read in um, verses 32 in chapter 5 to verse 3 in chapter 6, Moses continues to exhort the people using some of these same words again. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land that you shall, shall possess. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you're going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Just can't you hear his, it's just his instruction there in his heart. And I, and I tend to look at the verbs and it's just the same ones over and over. He talks about do, walk, live, fear, hear all the things that should help them obey. The Lord God had provided the way and he provided the place. Now, what are they going to do with this provision and this covenant? And in the verses following, we see the motivating factor that will cause obedience to happen. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, our memory verses for today. That section is called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And this verse again, it says, Hear, O Israel. Pay attention to these. These are important words. The Shema contains what has been called the fundamental truth of Israel's religion and the fundamental duty founded upon it. The fundamental truth has to do with the nature of God as one. The fundamental duty is the response of love, which God requires of man. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, the emphasis is that the Lord's unique in his oneness, not a pantheon of gods, but one, all-powerful, all-knowing. Other translations in this case say, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, or Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. 
No matter, the meeting is the same. Yahweh, or the Lord, was to be the sole object of Israel's worship, allegiance, and affection. And actually, the Israelites had already discovered the implication of this when they celebrated in song in Exodus after they were rescued. Exodus 15, 11, they sang, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Gods, little g, gods. A rhetorical question inviting a negative response. There were no gods like the Lord. In Exodus, the Israelites had already discovered the uniqueness of their God and that the Egyptian gods could do nothing to stop the Lord's people from leaving Egypt. So as we continue, verse 5 through 7, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. In this section, the subtitle in my Bible, and I'm assuming in a lot of yours, is called The Greatest Commandment, which is the same as our lesson title today. Jesus addressed this commandment also, and it's interesting to see these words at this point in the law. If we remember back to our introduction, the um, Torah or the Pentateuch are the first five books of the Bible. We have five books in our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In the Hebrew, it's one scroll. It's one book. But I find it interesting that it's not until now, toward the end of this fifth book, that we see the command for the very first time to love the Lord your God. It's not anywhere else before that. It's sort of astonishing that it takes to this point where mention of loving the Lord enters the picture. The commandments were given in Exodus that we just covered. They already had those, how to respect and obey God and live with fellow man. Yet loving God wasn't addressed in those commandments. So was it because God knew the hearts of the people and they weren't ready yet to hear those words? Maybe they needed to learn more about him and trust him before he could even speak about love to the Israelites? Because we've already seen how the Lord had shown his love to his people, the people he rescued and redeemed, and now he commands them to show him love. So what does this look like? How is it effectively done? What does it mean to love with all your heart, your soul, and your might? And how does it happen? E.W. Nicholson commented that in a very real sense, it's true to say that the entire book of Deuteronomy is a commentary on the command, you shall love the Lord, your God. The command to love is central because the whole book is concerned with the renewing of the covenant with God. And although the renewal demanded obedience, that obedience would be possible only when it was a response of love to the God who had brought the people out of Egypt and was leading them to the promised land. The injunction to love God was based on the precedent of God's love, 
which had been shown to the Israelites, principally in the Exodus and in a larger context in their election and calling from the time of Abraham. The all-encompassing love for God was to find its expression in a willful and joyful obedience of the commandments of God. Obedience to express love does not spring from duty. It can only happen if it's based on a relationship based on love. The extent of a man's love for God was to be total. Israel was to love God with her whole being, with loyal devotion. Now the heart was generally associated in Hebrew thinking with the mind. The soul was thought to be the innermost being or our emotions. And might obviously refers to loving God with all your strength very, very much. So the words heart and soul indicate that a man is to love God with unreserved devotion, with loyalty and allegiance. So the commandments provided the framework within which the Israelites could express their love of God. And they were to be upon your heart. That is, the people were to think on them, meditate about them, so that obedience wouldn't be just a form of legalism, but a response based on understanding. By reflecting on the commandments, they were reflecting on God's words. And by understanding the path of life set down by the commandments, they would at the same time be discovering the way in which God's love for them was given expression. This was and is God's desire that his people know his law, as declared in Jeremiah 31, 33, which says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jesus again addressed this greatest commandment in Mark chapter 12 when questioned by one of the scribes. The scribe asked Jesus, what commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said, you are right, teacher. You have truly said he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the scribe obviously understood, and Jesus said that the scribe had answered wisely. He said, the test of a man's love for the Lord Jesus Christ is that he keeps his commandments. In John 14, 21, Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by, by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And also in 1 John 5, 2, it says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. 
So these passages show that obedience to the commandments is an outgrowth of love. Love flows out of gratitude and devotion. It's an expression of loyalty. The present injunction was given to make clear to Israel what was to be the character of her relationship to Yahweh, her Lord. Anything less than wholehearted devotion and allegiance would lead to a shared allegiance. Only a love that is undivided can be called love in its truest sense. When any man loves God in a total way, he gladly obeys his words, which are inscribed on the heart. The demand of love towards God involves all other demands. The decision to love God implies the decision both to obey his commands and impart these to the children of the following generations so we can maintain an attitude of love and obedience among the people of God. I like a quote I found actually in Nelson's Bible Dictionary. It says, love is like oil to the wheels of obedience. It enables us to run the way of God's commandments. And that's referring to Psalm 119.32. Because we love God enables us to obey him. And just as the Israelites were to be noted as different or distinct from other nations, for their love of God and their obedience to him, we as Christians are to be marked by our love for Jesus and our devotion to him. So how are we doing with that? And just as the second greatest commandment says to love your neighbor as yourself, can we be declared guilty of doing that? Loving a God and loving our neighbor? Is it obvious to those around us that we love God? Is it obvious to the people at the grocery, the gym, the sporting events, the drivers around us? Guilty, not guilty of that. And I, I say, I don't have this figured out either, but that is a thought. Do others see God's love in me? So, because we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our strength. These verses are to be hidden in our hearts so we can reflect and meditate on their meaning and change our own lives. And it's only through the finished work of Jesus at the cross by being redeemed by Jesus that we have renewed hearts so we can love him as God and have love in our hearts for our neighbors. So we read from the screen our memory verse, and by now you should have it pretty well in your hearts. So let's stand and recite it from memory. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
you shall teach them diligently to your children when you sit sorry when you sit oh and my bad and talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk in the way when you lie down and when you rise Deuteronomy 6 4 through 7 thank you let me pray and we'll finish Father, I thank you for these words, and I pray that each of us, as we leave here today, take them to our heart, and that we meditate upon them, we learn them, we reflect on them. Thank you, Father, that you are our great God, the one and the only. I just praise you for who you are, and that you loved us first. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.